started. Uh, we are Wednesday, 5.30 Pacific, 8.30 East Coast time, episode 36 I have. You guys are going to have to kind of help me with the numbers now because I'm not uh, the most uh, adept at keeping these 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 episode numbers straight anymore, guys. I mean, these are pretty, pretty, uh, we've been doing this for a while now. So, um, if I mess up on any of the titles, just let me know, can quickly edit. It's not that big of a deal, but, um, I am glad that we're still going. I am glad that we're still meeting, uh, as a community here and still hopefully providing some value and answering some questions. Again, this is Mike drop here on the call in app. You can listen to the Mic Drop podcast anywhere you get your uh, favorite podcasts, the Spotify's, the Apple's, anywhere. Um, but the best way to get it is to subscribe using that subscribe feature. It will give you, I think, that quick notice when we do go live because sometimes when things happen, we will jump on, start a show, start a discussion, and try to cover the topic to the day. I was considering doing this before the State of the Union. Never want to do it afterwards, by the way, guys, because you never know how long these things are going to go. Remember when Bill Clinton, for us old guys, Bill Clinton was scheduled to go 45 minutes. Dude would go almost two hours, kind of like a mic drop show. Just kind of keeps talking. Uh, but, you know, uh, Biden kept it pretty tight, kept it to an hour. We're going to talk about some of the dynamics and some of what that means, because a lot of things are actually already starting to fall into place. I want to talk about some of those. My falling into place, what I'm talking about is the fundamentals of the presidential campaign, if you can believe that. So. Having to say, having to, having said that, um, uh, if you do get an opportunity to share this kind of on social media, I know Twitter is being Twitter today, or any other social media that you use, hopefully Mastodon, which has some really great communities, uh, let folks know that we're having this discussion. Uh, helps us to kind of build that audience, kind of helps us um, um, keep the discussion going and add some new voices. You'll see some regulars dropping in, and you'll see some new vo voices. Uh, uh, coming in as well. Uh, most people, of course, listen to this after it's been recorded and posted. So I try to turn these things around as quickly as I can. There have been some a uh, couple of bugs the last few episodes, but I try to get it up like right after I do the um, the, the the show. I'm trying to keep it at an hour. Um, so tonight we're going to talk about the State of the Union. That State of the Union is divided. I would suggest. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about why some of it is obvious, some of it is apparent, but then I also want to talk about some of the lanes that are starting to really clarify in the Republican side of the aisle and in the Democratic side of the aisle. And what we will do is kind of go through and parse some of that stuff um, to start giving us a sense of what is happening and why. Um, so with that in mind, a couple of the basics here. First of all, I have never seen a president ever give a bad State of the Union address. Yes, that includes Donald J. Trump, okay? Sorry, I'm not talking about the content. I'm not even talking about the tone. It is just such a commanding platform in such a unique environment with literally no response, with weeks and or months of preparation. All you have to work on is the delivery. And some people deliver it very poorly. Some deliver it masterfully. But regardless of how it's delivered, it is the item on the menu. It is what is being dished up. It is what is being served. And so people are going to consume it. And then they will react to what that was. So, again, it's very, very hard to look back historically and remember a bad State of the Union speech. And last night's speech, by all estimations, 
was, you know, uh, we're talking stand-up triple, you know, home run here, which the State of the Union always should be, okay? There's a couple of things that are happening now, most recently, uh, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the heckling that's become kind of commonplace on the Republican side of the aisle. That actually makes the president look stronger, makes him look better. It raises his stature. It makes him look more presidential. It makes him look above the fray, of, above the crazy. Um, and, and, and I was on an interview uh, earlier today doing a radio spot with um, KCBS, I think, radio, talking about that dynamic. Um, so let me lean into that. Again, first thing is really quick and simple and easy. Very hard. Main bullet, main takeaway here. Very hard to screw up a State of the Union. Haven't seen a bad State of the Union in 30 years. Probably won't for the next 30 years if I'm good enough to see another 30 State of the Unions. Um, what I will also say is um, the heckling that happens that is kind of looks like British Parliament or or something you would see in a Latin American legislative body where they literally parade and yell and throw stuff and bring in like, you know, uh, literally will bring in costumes, dummies, their props. Looks like just Mardi Gras, just mayhem. Uh, the Mexican legislature, for example, just, just terrible. Um, if we devolve into that, um, and, and my strong, sus my strong suspicion is it will get worse before it gets better because of where our politics are heading, then um, I think that only helps the president of the United States, regardless of which party, whoever it is. Okay, Kevin McCarthy himself, I think, was a little taken aback, a little bit pissed off, and was trying to kind of say, let's dial it back a little bit, Marjorie. Let's dial it back a little bit, Republicans. This isn't a good look for us. Not on this stage, not in this way. And he's absolutely right. So having said that, uh, that would be bullet points too. Any of the heckling, anything inappropriate that is beneath the stature of the office and the sacredness of that citadel of democracy hurts the party that's engaging in that behavior. In this case, the Republicans. Remember this, uh, that yelling uh, to Barack Obama guy yelled out liar. That was the first time we'd really started to see that. There's this seething, burning intensity with Republicans that just hate Democratic presidents. Uh, I'm not saying that doesn't ex didn't exist during the Trump era, but Democrats to this point have been far, far more restrained in the way they've comported themselves. And again, that I think only um, it doesn't necessarily help the party if they remain comported, but it certainly um, helps the opposition party when they lose that composure. Okay, that's the main thing. So this is also, I think, was a unique State of the Union address because for two reasons. The first is the list of accomplishments that Joe Biden was able to go up there and take credit for was actually pretty extraordinary, okay? Truly extraordinary what the Biden administration has accomplished. And, and look, you guys know I'm not a big pro-government fan. I, I'm not a big believer in, in, in legislation getting passed, saying that that's an accomplishment just for its own sake. I'm not making any judgments, certainly not partisan judgments. I really don't care. But I, I think from, from my perspective, when you're able to say, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, we've done this, we've done this, we've done that, in a bipartisan way, which he did extremely effectively, I, I mean, that's good stuff. That's good, meaty, weighty stuff. It's not just the big, epic, sweeping bromides where you know, you're talking about what you want to do, if only the other side would allow us to. 
you know, dude kind of went down there and basically just started clicking off and saying, we, we, we did the, some of the biggest investments since Eisenhower, biggest job creation in two years than any president in history has done in four years. Like really good substantive quality stuff that demonstrates that there's some competency in, in Washington, D.C. at a time of tremendous tumult. And that can only be very positive and very helpful for Biden and the administration. Now, having said that, it is really, really peculiar to be able to say something as profound as we've created 12 million jobs, more jobs in two years than any presidency has in four years, and still 75% of Americans think that the country's headed in the wrong direction. It's remarkable, actually. And what it tells me is that's not a messaging problem. And a lot of Democrats out there believe, uh, and a lot of you guys you know, will, will let me know this too, or, or ask questions about it. The Democrats are so bad on messaging. I'm not sure I really believe that. Okay, I don't, I don't think I've ever, I, I think that there's a style in approaching it. I've also been very clear that I think that if you don't have a policy agenda that matches the constituencies that you're trying to appeal to, there's no message that's gonna work. It's certainly not one that's gonna work for very long. So here's what I think is, is what's wrong. I, I don't think it's a messaging problem as much as I think it's a problem that both sides have in understanding the extraordinary tumult and churn and change that is happening to us societally. And I've shared with you guys before that there are three very significant dynamics happening in the American body politic and the American, uh, in American society. It's really a worldwide uh, um transformation, any one of which would be extraordinary, but we're hitting all three perfectly at this time. So pull out your pens and papers or just take a quick note so we can go back to any of these if you want to, but those three are these. The, the demography, the ethnic and racial composition of the country is going through this really transformative cycle where for the first time we're gonna become a non-white nation by the year 2040, an non-white majority nation. It's very significant, and it's the one that plays out the most because it's the most visible. It's the most obvious to see literally with your own eyes day in and day out. People are seeing it happening with, shared with you the old hardware store changing to a, you know, to a, to a quinceanera dress store or a taqueria or whatever it is. The second, is the economic transformation of the decline of the manufacturing base, which began really in the 80s with part of globalization, has really hit this point of kind of no return, right? And the opportunities for college-educated versus non-college-educated folks are completely different. And we're starting to see these numbers pan out over and over and over again. So that's the second. There's a racial demographic, there's an economic, and then the third is the technological change has really, really made what used to be called a generation gap, these generation chasms, and, and, and these, 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 these communities of communication are so far removed and so far distinct from each other that the realities of who we are as a United States of America is really kind of, I think, becoming question. In fact, that's what we've titled the topic today is the State of the Union is, is divided. I just don't know that it's possible anymore in the current media environment, which is probably going to get more and more 
exacerbated, if it's even possible to have a common nation, a common agenda as Americans, especially because we have prided ourselves on not having commonalities of ethnicities, of races, of religions, of creeds, of, of, of common culture, right? We don't have a common American culture. We talk about that all the time. And as technology allows us to remove ourselves and isolate into smaller and smaller, more intense, more narrowly focused groups, it's becoming really, really difficult to come together and compromise, work across lines and find find compromise being a virtue. It's just, it's just compromise being a virtue is antithetical to everything that we are rewiring ourselves and our phones with every day. We are getting more and more specialized, more and more services, hyper-targeted to us just the way we want, at the price point we want, delivered the way we want, when we want it, and to start saying, okay, well, on everything except for the big stuff like your government and your society, you can have whatever you want, but on, on the big things, you're going to have to compromise on most, almost everything. And, and I think we're just rewired to, to basically be saying that's, that's not what we want to do, and that's not good for democracy generally. And again, that's not an American problem. None of these, by the way, are an American problem. They're global problems as the world is transforming and changing into this new age, moving out of the industrial age and into the digital age. Okay? So again, Mike Madrid wind up there, but each of these three dynamics are completely transformational. Any one of them, any one of them would create an extraordinarily chaotic, unruly, difficult, destabilized environment for a political system. We're going through all three. And again, it's not just us. It's every country in the world virtually is going through all three of these. And that's making it extremely complicated for the machinery of democracy to work, the slow-moving machinery of democracy that was built literally, literally to be a slow-moving, deliberative process that protected the rights of minorities, that forced compromise and protected a fast-moving mob from taking over the government. That's what's made this thing so stable for 250 years. And now it's become so stable, so slow moving and so deliberative that we don't want it anymore in our society. Like literally, that's like all of those are characteristics that we are trying to develop technologies to get rid of, all three of those, right? But that's the basics of democracy. That's what we're trying to look at through the deliberative process that we built. So again, sorry about the long detour there. Gets us back to this challenge that Joe Biden has as an incumbent where he creates, or the government creates, or the economy creates, or all of them have some sort of uh, claim legitimately, I think, to, to being helpful in the process of restoring economic progress and growth. 12 million new jobs in two years. Economy, by most estimates, are roaring. Uh, the fundamentals are. But overwhelmingly, people are saying, country's headed in the wrong direction. I'm not comfortable with the economic underpinnings of what's happening here. Inflation is still that thief coming in and destroying our purchasing and buying power. You've got all of these day-to-day um, -day happenings that uh, in, in the economy that are, are eroding trust and stability in people's basic core beliefs that their job is going to be there, one or two, that that job that they're getting is going to be able to help pay the rent, the rising cost of groceries, and fill up my tank of gas. And I'm not talking by small numbers, I'm talking by very big numbers, 
75% of Americans feel that we're headed on the wrong track. Now, if you also look at Biden's approval ratings, they're not great, but they're not bad. Okay, they're not bad at all. He's, he's sitting mid 40s, uh, mid to high 40s. Sometimes it'll, it'll pop down to the 42 range, depending on which trend line you're looking at. They're not terribly different from what we saw heading into the midterms, even though the right track, wrong direction numbers are really getting higher. People feel decidedly worse than they did in November of 2020. I'm a political consultant. Here's what I'm going to tell my client, and it's going to be tough medicine, okay, because they're going to have to really buckle up their seatbelt, and I'm going to remind all of you that, again, you got to go in with a clear head, look at the data, see what you believe to be true, see what has proved true over the years, and then stick with your game plan, okay, because you're going to hear a lot of chatter from the pundit class. You're going to hear a lot of chatter on Twitter or social media about all the all the hand-wringing and things are going bad and the Democrats don't know how to message and people lighting their hair on fire and running around in circles. Look, the fundamentals have been for the past four or five election cycles, I would argue, going back to the last century, the mid-1990s cycle, 1994, I think is the real baseline that would suggest that negative partisanship is what drives this. I don't care, for example, I don't care if my candidate has negative approval ratings. I don't care if I'm running Joe Biden's campaign, if he's sitting at a 55 negative. I don't care if he's sitting at a 60 negative, okay? As long as the opposition's negatives are higher, okay? Elections are about a choice. It's not done in isolation. No one's voting for just Joe Biden or some generic person. He's going to be running against somebody if it's Joe Biden, and it will be, guys, okay? But let's just say, you know, whoever it is, whoever the Democratic nominee is going to be, people like Kamala Harris, her negatives are 56. They're high. They're big. They're worrisome. Okay, I suppose, I guess, who would she be running against? Donald Trump? Because I think if it's Biden-Trump, my money's on Biden. And I'm not going to hedge that bet. I'm going all in on Biden because the fundamentals say that. It's not that I'm a huge Biden fan. It's not that I think that Trump is 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 is, is got some strengths or some weaknesses. I don't care. I'm looking at the fundamental trend line. Okay, that's all I care. I'm clinically removing myself and saying, what does the data say? And what the data says is, first, incumbents are overwhelmingly reelected. Executive offices, especially, overwhelmingly, something has to really, really be going wrong. For the, the wheels have got to be coming off. The lights have to be going out. A pandemic that was avoidable has to be happening to even have a chance. Okay? Now, uh, so, net, so so incumbents, very overwhelmingly strong. Don't put too much faith or concern in the approval ratings. Doesn't matter nearly as much as the pundits are going to be thinking. Remember, none of these pundits run races. They don't understand this. They're all looking at approval ratings and saying, well, you all you want an approval rating over 50%. I don't remember the last time a president had an approval rating over 50%. I I, I think Obama hit it for like two two quarters in eight years. I think Biden may have like, you know, for three weeks before the 2020 election or after. I don't know. It's so rare now. 
It's so rare in an era of negative partisanship. It's a data point that is just way overemphasized and is essentially meaningless. And by the way, it's not a data point that professional consultants look at or put a lot of weight into because a race is not about your approval ratings. They may, be, uh, they may be based on approval ratings when compared to your opponent's approval ratings. That's a different calculation, okay? And there's no Republican in the offings that has extraordinarily high approval ratings. Why? So that's the third piece, okay? So incumbency, approval ratings. The third piece is the political stratification that we're seeing. And that political stratification means that there's extraordinarily little movement between the parties, very little movement. I mean, very little movement. I'm not gonna spend too much time on this because we've talked about this ad nauseum here on Mike Job, okay? 2000, look what happened with Bush Gore. 2004 was the weird anomaly because the country is at war, right? What was the spread between Bush Gore? It was, it was, it was minuscule, it was less than 1%, right? And the popular vote comes down to the electoral college vote we still don't exactly know. Bush wins by, you know, a handful of votes in, in, in whatever hanging Chad County it comes down to. 2004 is different. Incumbent president, economy is doing pretty well. Nation at war, right? All of those are strong indicators. Bush is going to win. He wins. It's the first one of the last eight election cycles, I think a president, Republican president wins the popular vote. Okay. Anomalous election. 2008 goes back to a traditional baseline. Obama wins the popular vote, wins the electoral college, overwhelmingly wins Democrats, overwhelmingly loses Republicans. Even though the economy is melting down, you still don't see a massive defection amongst Republicans. You see a strong break of independence towards Obama, as you would expect. Very predictable, very predictable. All three of those elections were. 2012, exact same dynamics. Okay, those independents stick. Why? Economy is doing great, and he's an incumbent, right? No one's going to switch horses in the middle of that stream. Like that's not going to happen. Okay, so four predictable elections. Then comes 2016, right? All the polling is wrong. Everybody's saying. We look back in hindsight, and we're like, actually, it was exactly right. Everything was saying Hillary was going to win by two to three points. She wins by three points in the popular vote. The electoral college comes in. Trump wins by 70,000 votes across three or four states. Most anomalously, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and some of these areas that have, we start to look at things differently, over-representation of non-college educated white voters. Trump pulls these guys to the polls, right? So there's the one that I think is really the, 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 the real freaky one, not just because it, it bucked the historical trend line, but because of who we got, right? That just, it, it, it really, I think, shook the confidence that people had in these traditional political measures, okay? And then 2020 is a little bit off because, look, we're in a global pandemic, right? The economy's shutting down, right? It's seizing up because the whole world globally is shutting down. Um, and people start to really, negative partisanship, voting by negative partisanship really starts to hit political overdrive. And what happens then is we see an incumbent being defeated for the first time since the 92 cycle when George Herbert Walker Bush loses, Bush Quayle loses to Clinton Gore. 92, yeah. So um, 
but, 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 the trajectory of both the Democrats and the Republicans remain entirely the same. The calcification stays the same. So I was talking Bannon line, right? Big deal. Lincoln Project starts focusing on 4 to 6%, right? This small range of voters that we're trying to move over. And we were successful. That's how we win Arizona. That's how we win Maricopa County. That's how we win the Atlanta suburbs. That's how we win Georgia. That's how we win Wisconsin. That's how we put Pennsylvania back. That's how we reconstitute the blue wall. It's largely Republican defections. Don't believe me? That's what happened in the 2022 midterms. It's exactly what I was got, said was going to happen, right? It, it, the, Republic, the electorate in the 2022 midterms was more was older, more Republican, uh, and whiter, W-H-I-T-E-R, whiter than in any of the previous three election cycles. And yet the Democrats do well. Why? Because this, this shift left of college-educated white voters is happening to the three, four, five, six percent. I think it was actually bigger this cycle, right? At the same time, non-college-educated Latinos hold their rightward shift. The college-educated versus non-college-educated shift that's happening in America with whites is moving to the left, and with black and brown people, it's moving to the right. Incidentally, excellent article written today by the Brookings Institute called The Polarization Paradox. If we could have the moderator post that in the chat room, I want everybody for homework to read this article because it's everything I have been saying, okay? And everything that I've been saying is the Democratic Party is becoming a party of wealthy, white, college-educated folks that are driving the opinions of their party, and they're holding on to a more tenuous black and brown non-college-educated base. Black and brown people, by a significant majority, identify more as moderates than do white Democrats. White Democrats overwhelmingly identify as progressive. Black and brown people do not. They consider themselves moderates, proudly. These are working class folks. That alliance in the Democratic Party is becoming an unholy, untenable alliance. That's what my caution has been to the Democrats for, for since the 2020 race when I started publicly advising them. You guys have a problem. You're going to start losing Latinos. You start losing black people. And lo and behold, what happens? They lose Latinos. They lose black people. You've got a problem with the working class. There's that link. I want you guys to read that for homework. It's going to state it in very clear terms. Why? And this shift happened. Guess when? Guess when it starts? 1994, like I've been saying. That's just not Mike Madrid saying that. It's now Brookings saying that, right? Some real smart guys, not just political hacks like me, like smart guys are now going, wait a second. This is what's been going on. Yeah, no shit. That's what political professionals have been saying for a long time. It's just people don't look at us like the academic intellectual folks because we're grinders. We run campaigns. We're kind of the... No one thinks of us as the smart guys in the room. And I get it. I, I get it. There's not a lot of us smart guys in the room. A lot of us just kind of unhanded, you know, uh, tricksters in the business. That's fine. But a lot of us have been saying this is what's been going on. This is what the, this is what the challenge is of the Democratic Alliance and what they've built and the way, what they are becoming. Okay. Now, remember, only 40% of 
the electorate is college educated, which means 60% is not. And a lot of this is geographically isolated, especially in California and New York and on both coasts, which, by the way, with the Florida exception, tends to be blue states. Okay, got South Carolina and Georgia touches the water. Georgia, I think, is a bluer state than, than I've been saying it's a bluer state, but you know what I'm saying. Florida, South Carolina, let's just not call that. You know, there's these exceptions California, Washington, Oregon. These are these blue sides, these blue borders. The battle increasingly is going to become for the Sun Belt, and that's going to determine the outcome of election. Moreover, the true determiner of who is going to win elections in the coming decades is going to be a battle between whether or not Republicans can hold on to their white college-educated base or whether Democrats can hold on to their Hispanic non-college-educated base. And if I, you guys heard me say this days after the 2020 midterms. So I was still worried after we beat Trump and Lincoln Project. I put this out. I'll pull it up on my Twitter account, repost it just to prove it. It's still there. Remind people periodically, this is the dividing line. And I said in the 2022 midterms, this is what it's going to be. Two years later, after I posted that, lo and behold, it's exactly what it is, which is the Republicans lost their college-educated base to the Democrats. And the Democrats that lost that shift in 2020 of Hispanic blue-collar voters stayed intact. They moved to the right and they stayed there. Okay? that's To me, that's a good thing. It's why I rested easy. Why is that? Because, first of all, there are still more white college-educated voters than Hispanic blue-collar voters. Just raw numbers. There are more. That's why the shift happened. That's why the 2022 electorate, the midterm that we just had, were whiter, older, and more conservative, still went with the, with, the, with the Democrats. What that meant was there's a growing share of Republicans who are voting for the Democrats. That's a very positive sign. Now, I'm going somewhere with all of this. Where I'm going with is the Republican response to Biden's speech came from Sarah Huckabee Sanders which was some deranged, unhinged bullshit. That shit was nuts watching that stuff. And I was like, this is crazy, okay? It may work in Arkansas. This is not working to, to meet independence, which is really where Republicans have a problem. They're not going to get Democrats anymore. They're too fucking batshit crazy for that, okay? Where they're getting is these independents and that where they're losing voters is with independents. That's who they lost with Dobbs. That's who they lost in 2022. By the way, this constituency is not locked down for the Democrats. Don't make that mistake. This is a big mistake that both parties make, but especially Democrats. They believe that when they, when they do well in elections like 2022, that somehow it's an affirmation of who they are in their policy agenda. No, 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 it's not. It was a rejection of the Republicans. A rejection of Republicans doesn't mean they're voting for you. It means they're voting against Republicans. And until both parties understand that, they're not going to adjust their message or their modeling to accommodate what is happening. And to watch Democrats kind of cheering, I get the importance of not losing the House by a big number, but you're not doing yourself any favors by not learning the lesson. Okay? And as much as Republicans haven't learned the lesson, Democrats aren't learning the lesson either. Okay? They're just not. And if you don't believe me, read the Brookings article. 
right here, that one, right under where Mike dropped, just posted that article, and it's going to show you why there is both a cultural leftward drift being driven by the white college-educated progressive elites in the Democratic Party and the pure condescension to which they talk to working-class people on. They're losing working-class voters. They're losing black voters. They're losing brown voters. And simply being anti-Republican and calling them racists, as true as that is, and that may be, that's not enough to win elections anymore. That's the lesson here. There's a reason why Hispanics stayed to the right of, of when they shifted in 2020, they stayed in a strong democratic year, relatively speaking, to the exact same extent that they did in 2020. That's a, that is a massive red flag, massive red flag. And there is nobody in the democratic party, I shouldn't say nobody, Ruben Gallegos' ad just nailed it. My friend Chuck Rocha, is, they're, they're, they're getting it. They're, they're starting to have more confidence. Latino Democrats are starting to have more confidence by challenging the white progressive structure in their own party and saying, maybe it's not about Latinx. Maybe it's not about defunding the police. Maybe it's not about the way you talk about race issues in a black-white construct that is working for the fastest-growing segment of the electorate. Okay. That's the problem that the Democrats face. So Biden's weaknesses, remember, aren't just a function of, of this working class problem, although that's a big part of it. It's also there's this cultural drift that the Democratic Party is just kind of further and further out there on. And they're losing Hispanics. It's not that I don't even think that they're turning them away. I think they're just so far away they're leaving this vote up for grabs and Republicans are winning them despite their bullshit that they promote. Okay. Not with all of them. There is a rising evangelical vote that we've talked about. There are, there is a strong military constituency. There is this Latino blue collar populism that is actually resonating. There's no question about it, but this neither party is really addressing this. And again, apologies. I don't want to drift into the Latino space again, because we've talked a lot about that over the past couple of days. But I do want to mention that most of this was and is starting to being addressed by Biden, by the Biden campaign. OK, so what is one thing that the Democrats are going to have to do that they won't do? OK, here's where I'm going to stitch them both together. OK. You're not going to get done on anything of, of great consequence. This the cycle. You're not. Republicans control the House. There's nobody in that caucus who's going to give anybody a win. They'll probably do something on debt relief to kind of, you know, um, uh, prevent uh, their own party from suffering disaster and getting blamed. That's very likely. Kevin McCarthy, you know, was there. In the government shut down in 96 and saw what happened. He was there. The government shut down when Trump shut it down in 2017, whatever it was saw how that hurt them in the 2018 midterms. Republicans don't do well in government shutdowns, okay? They, they never have. They never win that fight. They, they, they will take it on uh, foolishly because they can't help themselves. They will overplay their hand, but they've never done well with it. If the government goes to shut down, Republicans are going to get blamed. Why? Because most of them want it shut down. Most Americans don't want the government shut down. Just the Republican ideologues do. Okay. Most Republicans don't want the government, most Republican voters 
don't want the government shut down. When you start losing your own base, you're in bad political ground, right? You're in political quicksand. You better get the hell out. You better get the hell out quick because once you're knee deep, you're probably going to go all the way down. And that's what happened to Republicans in the 1996 shutdown with Newt Gingrich. And it's what happened to them in the 2017 shutdown with Donald Trump. They suffered significant defeats in both 96 and in 2018 as a direct result of shutting down the government. That would be my prediction. If this goes down to a government shutdown, if they can't get a a debt relief package done, it's going to hurt the Republicans. It's going to really, really help Joe Biden, who will announce for president, my strong suspicion is. And as I said, barring something changing the fundamentals, Joe Biden is, I think, virtually a lock for reelection. Okay, don't take anything for granted. Got to go through all the hoops and it's going to be very, very, very close. Uh, It would be very, very close under any circumstances. But the fundamentals still suggest that an incumbent at this point in time is the most likely victor. Okay. And the, 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 the 270 map, I think, changes. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But I just don't see the fundamentals changing to any market degree that would alter or change the normal trajectory of what the data has been showing us since the mid-1990s. In fact, I would suggest it's a, in a very, very predictable range. Okay, And I also think that any of the candidates that come out of the primary, the Republican primary, will be extraordinarily weak. Trump, DeSantis, I think they're probably the only two likeliest. I, I'm going to add one caveat uh, who I don't think runs this cycle, Tucker Carlson. I've mentioned Tucker before. If Tucker were to run, he would win the nomination. And I think he has the best chance at unseating Joe Biden, but I still don't think he'd be able to do it. If Tucker is smart, and he is, and decides he wants to run, Four years from now, when Biden is termed out, uh, I think he stands a very good chance of winning. In fact, I think uh, the odds are very, very good of a Republican winning in 2028. Boy, how old am I when I'm talking about 2028 presidential elections? I think it's very likely that a Republican wins in 2028. I think it's very unlikely that a Republican wins in 2024. Okay? So with that... Let's talk a little bit about the lanes. Are there any questions? If you've got questions, jump into the queue now, okay? Uh, if there, if let me let me say this: the lanes. Uh, Nikki Haley. We talked about Nikki Haley a couple weeks ago. I'm going to be writing as part of a, 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 a group project. New York Times has this cool project coming out where a group of us are going to be writing some snippets based on the dynamics of the candidates as they jump in. So Nikki Haley will be the first. This one starts on February 15th is when her announcement runs. Some of us will be prognosticating. I don't think this is a serious campaign. I also don't think that she's running for vice president. I don't think she's got a real shot at uh, either. Uh, She's not going to win the nomination. That's not going to happen. And I also don't think that she meets most of the criteria that is needed in most instances for a vice presidential candidacy, one big caveat, if it's DeSantis, DeSantis's tendency to pick somebody more mainstream with regular experience and credibility, but still has these quasi-Trump bona fides, I think that Nikki Haley has a, has a chance, okay, being a veep. I also think it's wise for her to be the first one out of the gate because she knows she's not going to win. She knows she's not there, that there's no lane. And as long as she doesn't um, attack her opponents, 
too critically or too viscerally and keeps her head above water and tries to be statesmanlike, she's probably on the short list um, for a DeSantis, not a Trump. Trump is not going to pick her, but but probably for a DeSantis has got to take got to take a look. Okay, because, again, her, her, her greatest weakness for Trump is she was never Trumper then she's a Trumper. Now she's never Trump again. That's a that's a strength for DeSantis. Okay, because that's where a lot of Republicans were. Remember, only 37 percent of Republicans voted for Donald Trump in the primary. There's a lot of Republicans that didn't like Trump. Then he became the nominee and they were all about Trump. And now that he's gone, they're wishing that he'd go away again. That's 63 percent of the Republican electorate. Nikki Haley meets that criteria. I don't think she's a strong contender, but I don't think she's she's you can't dismiss her out of hand for that. Um, just you can't just dismiss her out of hand. OK, so that's, again, what I'm seeing. Let me bring up uh, M, a regular caller, uh, to save me a little bit from the, the monologue and hopefully answer some questions. But let's start filling the queue, guys. Let's get some, some dialogue going. M, can you, can you unmute? Lost you. Brenda. There you are. Brenda, how are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Great to hear your voice. Thank you. Good to hear you too. Um, I have a sort of weird question, I guess. Um, But I'm really curious why you think Tucker Carlson would win in 2028 or I, I'm just I don't watch him but I've seen little clips here and there on Twitter and I think he's nuts but you know I'm I don't know does he appeal that much to everyone no but you gotta listen really closely to what I'm saying it's not about politicians it's not about their appeal to anyone anymore oh, okay yeah. It's, yeah. it's who you're running against. Now, look, unless something extraordinary happens, um, I, it's very, very hard to see history changing after eight years of Joe Biden. History changing after eight years of Joe Biden, that the Democrats win again. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. Is it likely? I think history would say, no, it's not. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so... Um, I think that it will probably be a Republican in 2028. Again, this is this is a pure data discussion. Okay, this is just what the what the the data since '92 would would suggest. Okay, and I uh-huh. maybe go back to 1980. You can look at the trend lines would suggest that Joe Biden will be reelected, and then in, in after eight years of Democratic rule in the White House, that the the American public will look for another uh, will look. Um, after eight years of Democrats, they will look for a Republican. So it's predicated on that data point. Now, once that data point is established, the question becomes, who becomes a person that has the most appetite that appeals to the Republican base because you got to first win the primary, but then also has a message that is resonant beyond that to independence. And what Tucker Carlson has is something that I think has become not just a um, characteristic of republicanism, but it's basically becoming increasingly a requirement. And that is you've got to be from outside of the political system to win, or at least to be nominated. 
And as I brought up, not just Donald Trump himself, who's the first president to never have military or elected experience ever, right, ever. Like George Washington. George Washington was never elected to anything, but he was a military general. Donald Trump was the first one who never served in the military, never served in office. The guy never served his country in any capacity. Like that, that's a feature now of the Republican Party. Then you look at Carrie Lake, you look at Dr. Oz, you look at Herschel Walker, you look at uh, uh, J.D. Vant. You start to see this, 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 this celebrity, especially this online social celebrity, is the requirement. They're looking for culture warriors. They're not looking for people with, oh, that's an experienced governor. Oh, that guy did a great job in the Senate. Oh, she did a remarkable job as the U.N. ambassador and as governor. I really like her policy platforms on this. Like those are not a thing. The Republicans are looking for a culture warrior and the strongest warriors are those that have never been tainted by service to this country. How fucked up is that? Excuse my language. But that's yeah, where we're yeah. at. No, and so Tucker, Tucker meets all of that criteria. I'm not saying he's the only one, but I think he's the only one at this moment. Hell, in six years, will that change? Most assuredly. And we'll see more people coming onto the scene that meet that criteria but all of them driven by this countercultural dynamic. Okay. Okay. It's going to take me a while to get that, to wrap that around my head. So um, I'll keep listening and just <laughs> take your word for it. Yeah. I mean, look, yeah. I, um, and again, could I be wrong? Of course I could be wrong. Um, I'm just giving you my experience from somebody who's worked with the Republican base for so many years and, you start to see these dynamics happening. There's a reason why. It's why I also don't think, for example, that um, DeSantis is nearly as strong as most people think that he is. He, he may well he may well be the person if Trump continues to stumble and is unable to coalesce that part of the base. But Trump is coming after him, and DeSantis is now put, punching back. Right? Yeah. DeSantis has done a really good job of of staying out of the paper since the midterms. Never took a victory lap, by the way. DeSantis never took a victory lap. He's the one state where they have a red wave, a big red wave, right? And he gives us big with minorities, big with Hispanics, crushes it with everybody. And you would think normally you, you start going around the country and you do a trip to Iowa and New Hampshire and start talking to, you know, big donors in every parts of the state. And no, he's done none of that. That, which is the right move. Let the narrative set and let Donald Trump do Donald Trump, right? So Trump does his big, horrible rollout at Mar-a-Lago. He allows Nikki Haley to kind of enter without attacking her. And then he basically calls DeSantis a pedophile, what, two, three days ago? Calls him a pedophile. So DeSantis swings back. And the establishment is going to start swinging back at Donald Trump too. And you know that's going to help? It's going to help Donald Trump. And the reason why is because Donald Trump has this strong 35, 33, 37% of the Republican base that will fly wingside to, through hell for this guy. 37% yeah. of Republicans said in a poll earlier last week that they would leave the Republican Party and vote for him if he runs as an independent. He has massive, massive leverage over the Republican base. Massive. Because that means they can't win with him and they can't win without him. So DeSantis, if DeSantis leaves uh, or if DeSantis starts beating him in the primary, 
it gets nasty and ugly, Trump's not going to be like, okay, 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 I'll be a good Republican and fall into line. I mean, Donald Trump doesn't even know how to do that, even if he wanted to do that, even if that was the right political move for him. He's not, he's not constituted to do that. He's going to make damn sure that the next Republican loses. That's what he's going to do. Yeah. And that, uh, yeah. yeah. So you see that happening? Mm-hmm. Definitely. So that, that's why this fight between DeSantis and Trump is a good one. And it's also the bigger the field complicates that dynamic. I think it helps Trump. I think a bigger field helps Trump. Um, and I think it hurts DeSantis. DeSantis right now, I think, may be at, you know, part of his strongest positioning right now. He's, he's going to wait a while. He, without, he's not going to announce until deep into this thing. Nikki Haley's going to get in because she's got no choice but to try to make waves because she's completely irrelevant. Chris Christie will jump in. Larry Hogan will jump in. Pompeo will jump in. Pence will jump in. All of these people are going to start jumping in. They're all going to be sitting at 3, 9, 12%, bumbling around. Trump will be sitting at 37, 35%. DeSantis will be sitting at like 23, 24%. And then once DeSantis gets in, we're talking April, May, June timeframe, probably April, May. Once he gets in, then that field is going to start consolidating. And he and Trump are going to start moving up and closer together. And those the other names are going to start to consolidate into a very small lane. Okay? Someone should be writing this down to see if I'm right. But that's the likeliest scenario. Okay? There is those, through the spring, there's going to be these, you know, Ben Carson effects too where, like, Pompeo will jump in and then then he'll be like the front runner of the bottom pack and there'll be a poll out there showing he's at 22% of these outliers. And then, you know, CNN and Fox and everybody will rush to cover Pompeo for a week and then Trump will come up with some name for him and knock him back down and then he'll go away and then Pence will come up. And, you know, the, the main thing you're looking for right now in the Republican primary is how low Trump's level of support is. If he starts going below 30, I'm going to change my consideration. Mm. But, but uh, you know, I'm not going to say this dude's not out until he's under, under 10%. If he's sitting in the low 30s, he's got all the leverage in this party. And DeSantis, you know, unless he consolidates virtually everything else, it gets hard with a big field. It just does. Yeah. It just gets really, really hard for DeSantis to start popping up over Trump when there's six other candidates in the field splitting up the anti-Trump lane. Not saying it won't happen. I'm, I'm saying it's very unlikely. Yeah, that's amazing to me. That's a very interesting thing um, that happened last time, um, and I, I didn't understand it at that time. I, I thought I watched Trump for entertainment at that time because I thought this guy's such a joke, but yeah, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it's that, that's the, that's the problem with when, 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 when a party becomes exclusively focused on cultural issues, it becomes a joke. It becomes entertainment. It becomes performative. So Marjorie Taylor Greene starts to, you know, wear a Cruella DeVille jacket and starts acting the fool <laughs> on the house of because she's looking for more attention. That's all she's looking for. She's not, she's not trying to govern. She's not trying to help people's lives. She's trying to get attention because that's all the Republican Party is anymore. It's, a, it's, a, it's about power, and that power is simply 
dominating the culture, the culture wars. Um, so interesting. Yeah. So I hope it was helpful, but thank you for the question. Okay. All right, Brenda. See you later. All right. Thank you. Greg, you're up in the queue. Go ahead and unmute. Let me know what's on your mind. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, awesome. Uh, so, I, so I guess my big question is: I've heard you talk about having, you know, a big field be beneficial to Trump, and you know, so so what's the end game for all these also rands? You know, what's the be- the end game for Chris Christie? You know, as a former former New Jersey person, you know, and Bridgegate and all that. It's like, come on, guy, don't you know when to hang it up? Yeah, that's a great question. So usually in a field where there's an open uh, party, when there's no incumbent, right? What's happening is people are testing the environment for whatever the new administration and the new Republican hierarchy is going to look like. And some people call it running for vice president. And I think that's kind of an outdated notion, although it's technically, I, I guess it's kind of true because most people would take the VP spot if it opened up. But really what they're kind of looking for is just to be as close as they can be to the next king, right? They're they're trying to be the next kingmaker. They're trying to own a lane in the party. So maybe Nikki Haley is looking for the the female lane. I'm just saying hypothetically. Or she's looking for the non-white male Christian lane. She thinks that she's going to get 10 to 12%. That makes her valuable in the next administration. So you may be saying, well, so what? She's going to run for president to do that? Yeah, and let me tell you why. What the hell else is she going to do? Like, what the hell else does Nikki Haley do if Biden wins again? She's done. What what does Chris Christie do if Biden wins again? He's done. What what, what do all of these guys do, all these also-rans do? Like, no one's going, wow, Christie could win in 2028, or Nikki Haley is going to be a real contender in 2028. They're done. So you either run for some sort of lane to start saying that you can quantifiably deliver a group of voters to help the next presidential campaign, or you hang up the cleats and call it quits and just decide your your, your political career is over. So right, these so are also rands are basically people who just can't can't hang up the cleats yet. So, so they're clamoring for relevance. Now, are any of them smart enough to be looking towards 2028 yet? Or is it, is that like not something that happens, you know, six years away? <laughs> no, I mean, that, I mean, it's a great question. And, and I'll so, let me let me answer that a couple of ways. The first way I'm going to say is if you're looking for 2028 right now, uh, you're just your narcissistic tendencies are getting the best of you because you're who the hell knows. Right. But are they looking towards 2020? Absolutely. They all think they could be president at any given moment. Like they genuinely believe it. If you're running for president, and I don't care who you are and who your idol is, there's you have a, a deep narcissistic tendency. You have to. You have to be constituted that way to put up with everything that you're going to put up with. Does Joe Biden have it? You're damn right he does. Did Barack Obama have it? You're damn right he did. They all do. You have to. To put yourself out on the national stage like that, you have to have an inhuman, abnormal belief in yourself for whatever reason. I'm not saying it's nefarious. I'm not saying it's malicious. But you have to have an uncommon belief in yourself to say, I'm going to be the leader of the free world. Think about that. 
when 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 the when the push the button moment comes to either save or destroy the world i'm the best person to do that okay like for you to say yes immediately and put yourself out there publicly to say that which is what they're all doing something's not right with you okay and i i worked with thousands of candidates there's something a little messed up in every almost every one of those candidates Okay. Now, the higher you get, the more messed up it is. Because, and I'm not saying, look, this is not a bad, we need people like this to run, okay? We need them surrounded and not have an understanding of their own limitations. But yeah, it's like they're like celebrities. There's something that is just not normal. And when I mean normal, I don't mean clinically dysfunctional, although that is truly the case, like Donald Trump. What I mean is it's above the norm. It's above the average of the, of, the, of the normal of the average person. You have to have an uncanny sense of yourself. I don't know if uncanny is the right word. You have to have it. They're not normal. Yeah, you have to believe in yourself more than normal. <laughs> more than normal. The average person's like, wait a second. Maybe it's not rational to, to want to have my finger on the button to end humanity. The politician running for president's like, I'm the best person to do that. You want me uh, making that decision. Like they all, all, the, all, all the pushing the button reminds me of the Genesis video, Land of Confusion with yeah, Ronald yeah, Reagan. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly right. So so you know what I'm saying? So yes. I mean, are they, look, the, most politicians don't think long term, right? They all think that they're going to win this cycle. They have a very inflated sense of self. And so six years from now, we'll take care of itself. Because I'm going to do so well in this presidential, if I'm not the nominee or the president this time, I'm going to be so well set up that, of course, they'll choose me in 2028. Like that, you literally have to be of that mindset naturally. It's not, you can't train it. You have, to, you have to be born with that dysfunction. And that's <laughs> all of them are. And so they, 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 that's why they have this hugely inflated sense of self that, um, that, that they don't really think about six years down the road. Um, because rationally, that's just, it's crazy. Thinking six months down the road is six years, let six years. Well, yeah, but I'm sure it's not just them, right? It's the strategists poking in their ears going, hey, you know. My meal you know, ticket. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. You know, telling them how smart they are and how funny they are and how they, they really connect with people. And that's where, the, you know, we ought to talk about that at some point. It would be a great show is the political the role of the political consultant in feeding their clients ego because look man as a political consultant just like anybody else too is the, the you know the super bowl for us is running a presidential campaign like that's like you, you know when you're the strategist making the decisions and making the calls that's like being a quarterback in the pocket of the super bowl there's no bigger moment like you're making the calls like that's what we that's what political consultants dream of right i want to do a presidential once you do one like me i'm, I'm out i did mine right I, I don't want to do that again but most don't once you win one most people don't go back like my buddy bob shrum he, he's run seven and lost every one of them democrat you know that's just brutal he's, he's still chasing it because he needs it got my fix in the lincoln project right like i you know did everything I needed to do, did a presidential, I'm out. Most people who win check out and they're just done because it's brutal. It's brutal, okay? Um, but political consultants, you know, they're, they've got their stable of candidates and they're feeding those egos because that's 
they want that too, just as much as the candidate. And when there's a pairing like that, it can be very good. Axelrod and Obama, Rove Bush, or it can be, you know, Carville Clinton, or it can be very, very bad, like most. <laughs> most, most don't make it. Right. Very, very few people, very few people have won a presidential campaign as a political consultant. But every one of them has to manage their candidate. And usually it means feeding that ego. Yep, I got it. Thanks, Mike. All right, buddy. Thank good here for you. Jennifer, go ahead and unmute. Hi there, Mike. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm from Texas and I don't want to keep you on the on the line all night long and get you off on a tangent, but, um, that's why we're here for tangents. I know. But speaking of narcissists, um, Ted Cruz isn't a part of the conversation and, um, my Congressman is seriously thinking about running, uh, against him in 24. And so you had me thinking that maybe Ted would skip this time and wait for 2028 because, uh, he has to pick one or the other. And clearly he can't beat Trump. So Yeah. That I mean great. Yeah. I haven't even right? thought about a lion Ted. Lion <laughs> um, Ted. Lion Ted. And um, I'm thinking You know, it, the thing about Ted Cruz is this. He he really should have won that primary. He did everything in twenty sixteen to win. Uh everything. He had a complete domination over the state party uh apparatus in, in almost every state. Um and he clearly, desperately, more than anything, wants to be president of the United States. Uh, so much so that he'll, you know, kneel at the foot of Donald Trump after Trump's done what he's done to his family and his wife and humiliated him. Yes. Um, I, so, that, I mean, look, that, that, that what, I, no one's been thinking about that, but I'm so glad you brought it up because it's such a great question. I don't know what, maybe I'm going to ask you, what, what do you think Ted Cruz does? I think he, I think he waits it out. I believe that he waits it out because he has that much confidence in himself, like you were just just discussing. Yeah. There you go. Um, I think yeah. he really does think he can do it, uh, even though he's morphing into this Steve Bannon-esque look with the way he looks. And I mean, he used to be so clean cut and a prep and Harvard and and, you know, he, now he in Princeton, excuse me. And now he's morphing and becoming more Texan. Interesting. And. My really with how tuned in you are with the different demographics, I was wondering if maybe one week you can do part of a show on what what it's going to take to turn Texas Latinos out. Um, yeah, I, I because would love to. yeah, this 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 I, I I told my congressman when he called, you know, I've known him before he ran, and I just was saying, you know, you Texas to me is not ready. Uh, to, to beat Ted Cruz. Uh, we tried no. it with Beto. No. Uh, but yeah, with, with Texas isn't ready. And I'd rather you stay in Congress than, than to do this. But, you know, he, he can do what he wants. Um, but I would love for you to do a show what we can do in Texas to, to our Latinos on the border are different than the Valley, different than the northern part of the state. I mean, we're just, we're a whole country down here. And it seems like no one here wants to do the work to to get decent politicians. Cornyn used to be not so bad. And yeah. it seems like, you know, we, we can't, we, we don't seem to want to do the work to 
at least purge like they did in Georgia. You know, I, I, at least purge the bad ones. Keep keep the ones you say are good, but just get rid of the walkers of the world. Get rid of the cruises of the world. And it seems like we're just not. We need the Latino vote. And <laughs> yeah, just, and, I would I mean, love. You know, Texas. I've been I've been looking at Texas since the mid '90s because uh, I'm actually writing a big chapter on this in the book. Is uh, back in the '90s. Let me take. Let's let's all take a little back in the way back machine. The 1990s. Uh, you know, when, when George Bush beats uh, Ann Richards in 94, right? It's a huge Republican wave. And and um, Mario Cuomo and Ann Richards lose, right? They're, they're kind of the, the, the two big Democratic governors, titans that go down. Yes. And um, Pataki beats Cuomo in, in New York, and George W. Bush beats Ann Richards in in Texas, and Pete Wilson wins re-election in California after Pete was down 27 points to Kathleen Brown, Jerry Brown's sister, in 1994. He was down 27 points in February. He comes back and wins by 13. It's one of the great political comeback campaigns in history. In 1994, is a huge Republican year. I was an undergraduate at Georgetown at the time. And I'm, I'm telling the story because I'm going somewhere with Texas. Texas at the time represented something very new and unique in what was about to happen with the Republican Party because George W. Bush had a natural affinity with the Latino community. And people don't remember this because we talk about this rightward shift that happened with Donald Trump getting 37% and that number staying in 2022. But Reagan got 40% of the Hispanic vote in 1984. And George W. Bush got 44% of the vote in 2004. Now, George W. Bush and Ronald Reagan shared something in common, as much as I'm sure people hate them or don't like them or want to say that they were the devil. The truth of the matter is those two presidents, George Herbert Walker Bush was was probably in there too, were the most pro-immigrant, pro-Mexican Republican presidents uh, in our history. And they got 40%, 44%. And it's really, pundits don't bring this up. But it's not that Trump, you know, is getting a record number of the Hispanic vote. And it's not that his, his America first, right wing, build a wall politics are getting a record number of the Hispanic vote. It was the pro-immigrant, pro-Hispanic, pro-Mexican Reagan and, and George W. Bush that set the highest standard. What that tells me, because it's data, is that even though even though Republicans are sitting at a 37% baseline nationally, there is still room to grow with actually a more positive, aspirational, welcoming, pro-immigrant, pro-Hispanic agenda. Okay, that, that's, I mean, I don't think that's unreasonable. There's enough data from 1980 and the 2000s, it's now 2022. There's plenty of data to say we are sitting at an artificial low, but there's still room for Republicans to move up. This is where Abbott was making the claim in this last election cycle that they were going to get 50% of the vote. Now, they fall short of that. But where, where, where Democrats had the real opportunity to win Texas was in 2018, when Beto could have beaten Ted Cruz. I think he could have beaten him the, the, because 2018 was a very big turnout year of Democratic constituencies. The Hispanic voting bloc was still intact for the Democrats. 
where, where Texas Hispanics voted the same as California Hispanics, which is basically a 70-30 split for the Democrats, big numbers. By 2020, that collapses, okay? And the, the problem for Texas Democrats now, it, well, first of all, and I was telling them, the, I was telling them as a Republican, I was saying this because it was so, so, so silly. There was this te turn Texas blue thing. Let's get Latinos, Hispanics to the polls. That was never the reason why Texas was red. The reason why Texas is as red as it is, is because whites are overwhelmingly conservative. California and Texas on paper are virtually identical. Texas just became a Hispanic plurality state, I think, in September of last year. It's more Hispanics now than whites. They're not 50%. They're like 37 38%. Whites are sitting at 36%. African Americans around 12%. The rest are API and other groups. It's very close to California. They're virtually identical on paper. But one is the reddest of red states. The other is the bluest of blue states. How is that possible? demographically? The answer is white voters. In California, wealthy, white, college-educated people are very progressive. They live in the coastal counties. They live by the ocean, wealthier areas. Poor whites live inland. In Texas, there's very little differentiation between college-educated whites and non-college-educated whites. They all vote largely as a white voting block, and they're very conservative. So the way you win Texas is not the Hispanic vote. So I've been telling, telling Democrats for years, no one listens, but, you know, Democrats are smarter <laughs> than everybody else. The way you win that vote is you win by getting white college-educated suburbanites on cultural issues to move off. That's why Beto's strategy was so messed up. Anybody listening to Mike Drop remembers me saying he's not going to win, and he's going to the wrong places. And I was exactly right. Wasn't I right? Peg remembers. I was right, Peg, right? I was like, <laughs> Why are you going to rural counties? There's no voters out there. That's not where you're supposed to be going. Get into the Houston suburbs. Get into the Dallas suburbs. Go to the Austin suburbs. Go into the burbs. Go get those college-educated white voters. Get out of your pickup truck. Quit with the stupid viral ads and start grinding the chicken dinners at the Chamber of Commerce meetings and get those Republicans over to your side. That's where the votes are. Go fishing where the fish are. That's what it's going to take. And it ain't going to be Beto. Beto's not going to win Texas. Probably ever, by the way. No, he, 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 no, he will never win. You need a working class Hispanic who can speak the, his working class Hispanics like Ruben Gallegos in Arizona, but also has a working class policy agenda like Alex Padilla in California. Ruben's still a little bit too progressive. But if you have if you have a working class Hispanic Democrat from Texas, you got a shot. Who was the lieutenant governor that ran? Didn't you, didn't you run a candidate for controller or something too? Hispanic uh, woman. Uh, for the Democrats, yes. yes. Uh, she, she was like the top vote getter, right? She did better than Beto. She did. She did. I mean, Beto is damaged goods um, at this point, so I'm hoping that we retire. We can retire him. Run uh, her. Uh, well, run her. The, the Texas. I agree with you a thousand percent. We Beto should have been in the suburb, but I don't think there's anything he could have done to one to win. No, the I suburb. agree. I agree. Around there's nothing he could have done the first go round. Yeah. Yes. Um. I, but but I, my I think I, with Texas, what was I, so I, deflating about Texas was Uvalde, and yeah. that I 
that is why I think some Texas Democrats think it's a lost cause, because if this happened and you still voted for, you know, for no change, then how can we win? Because, the, the you know, Dallas, we here in Dallas, we turn, it's a solid blue city. Um, Houston, I don't know if it's solid blue still, but it was close. Austin, of course, El Paso, you know, the major cities are, except Fort Worth. And so, you know, turning out our vote is, is extremely important, um, in the major cities. It's just. But here, here's the difference with Uvalde is 80% Hispanic, right? Yes. 80% 80% Hispanic voted Republican after what happened with that horrific shooting. Abbott wins. Right? Challenge with those counties, there's not that many votes there. It's disturbing and it's troubling, but don't be trying to convince those voters. You just correctly mentioned the Houstons and the Austins. Those are very deep blue cities. But notice what I said where Beto should be. I didn't say he should go into the cities. And I didn't say he should go into the rural counties where he was spending most of his time. What I said is he needs to go to the suburbs. He needs to go to the bluish, reddish burbs and move white college educated, largely women off of the Republican Party and into that that Democratic column. You're not going to win rural votes, Democrats. You're not that party anymore. You're not that party. You're not a working class party anymore. Democrats have got to realize they're not going to win non-college educated Hispanic. You're going to keep losing those folks. Okay. Your area to win, and there are more of them, is getting white college educated women. Is it a long-term problem for the Democratic Party? It absolutely is. The problem is, as the as the Democratic Party becomes more white and more college educated, it gets further and further away from relatability with working class people. That's the Democratic Party. Take, take a look. Listen to Joe Biden's speech again. Back to Joe Biden, right? All he was talking about was working class, working class, working class. That's fantastic. They get it. They get it. They're going to have to start pushing back against their base to get back into the middle where the votes are. Okay. So you saw, you're seeing the Democrats starting to figure this out. Biden is saying it now. Ruben Gallegos, who has probably one of the most progressive voting records in the house, runs this beautiful ad about being working class. He's going to have to put up some votes to back it up in this session, by the way. Can't just keep voting like Bernie Sanders and start arguing that you really like Joe Biden. You, you can't. At a certain certain point, people are going to see through that. And I think he will. I think he's getting it. Because that's where the future of the Democratic Party is Hispanic working class. It's not white, progressive, college-educated homeowner people that are getting older and wealthier. That's what it's rapidly becoming. And that's why the Democrats have this relatability problem. And they were just like, I can't figure out like why people aren't voting for us. We're so smart. We've got the answer to all these problems. It's like that's just they're just not relatable to what the guy who's you know taking his lunch to work sees the world. Read 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 that article that was just posted. Can we post that again, Mister Mo- Moderator? Post it again. Read this Brookings Institute article. If you don't believe me, that's fine. I'm this Republican Lincoln Project guy. 
you know, your Republican is showing everyone says, oh, my God, because I don't toe the Democratic line because I'm not a Democrat. Read this article. It's not just me now. The Democrats are figuring it out. Okay. So read this article. We'll post it again in the chat. But this article right there that was just posted by Greg is going to tell you. Read this over and over until you can recite it. There's a great paragraph three or four lines down that talks about the difference. It says it in italics. I think I posted it on Mastodon and I posted it on Twitter. That basically makes the case. Unlike three decades ago, the Democratic Party is now a coalition of white liberals and non-white voters, the majority of whom think of themselves as moderates. Think about that. That's the coalition. That's the challenge of the Democratic Party. You either have to bring Latinos and working class people around to be convincing them that their jobs aren't at threat by the environmental policies that you're pursuing or that the social cultural issues that you're talking about are somehow more relevant than their daily experience, or you're going to have to start adopting working class policies that work for working class people. That's what the Democratic Party has to do. It has to decide whether it's really the party of Franklin Delano Roosevelt or not. Is it a working class party? Do they support the construction trades? Do they support union members? Do they support rank and file folks who don't have a college degree that want to buy a house and raise their family of three or four kids that go to church on Sunday and play by the rules? That's not what the Democratic Party is increasingly looking like. And that's not me saying that. That's that is Brookings now saying it. And 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 Carlos Odio uh, from the um, Eckes research saying it and the, the, the good Democratic pollsters. There are a couple of really, really dangerous Democratic pontificators who were, I think, who got a lot right in the 2022 midterms that are saying there's no Latino problem. There's still that going on in the Democratic Party. And I just rail on this because I rail, look, I've been railing on Republicans, you all know, for years on this stuff. If they're wrong, I'm going to tell them they're wrong. I'm going to tell Democrats they're wrong, too. I'm agnostic on this, but I've been doing this for a living. I've done this the highest levels on both sides of the aisle, by the way. No one's going to you know, hurt my business or ruin my political career. I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. I'd rather just put the truth out there and tell people what it is and then come back to them two, three years later and say, remember I said that two years ago? Wasn't that complicated? It's just not believing or buying your own bullshit. I'm talking about political consultants. I'm not talking about obviously anybody here. Is There's a lot of people who tow the party lines because they're trying to move up in the party hierarchy to get more title, to get bigger appointments, to have more business contracts to get to run for office. They're doing it for every reason other than to reflect the values of the community that they should be and probably got into politics for in the first place. That's how the system gets corrupted. That's why it's self-corrupting. Power corrupts, right? So that's, that's sorry about the tirade, but that's, I mean, that's not just Mike Madrid saying that. Anyway. Wonderful. Thanks, my. Jim, thank you for joining us. Sorry about the long speech there. I hope it was helpful. Peggy, my my dear, how are you? Hi, Mike. How you doing? I'm doing great. How have you been? Good, good. I want to talk about Long Island politics, but some other time because we, we Long Island, New York, really screwed us up. So uh, we want to change that. We should but, run you against George Santos out there. Who should? <laughs> Me. 
I bury him. Oh yeah. my God. I'd probably lose a lot of liberal people though. Because yeah. <laughs> you guys radicalized me in the Lincoln Project. So <laughs> you get my vote. I'm voting for you. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. So you set me up good with with what I wanted to say is that I felt much of Biden's speech last night was about working class people. Yeah. And um I listened to it twice and it was just point after point working class. Yeah. And I, I felt like also that speech like kicked off his 2024 campaign. Agreed. And I'm starting to see ads today on the TV yeah. about Biden. So I wanted to know what your sense was about that. And he's also going around the country now. And so is Kamala Harris. So it's like campaign mode is. Yeah. Look, this. Yeah. There's always this chatter. Usually it's like, is he going to dump the VP, right? It happens all the time. Like Dan Quayle. Now, I'm not talking about the dumping. I'm just saying she's going around, too, to tell people about what's been done. Like, He's the messaging is starting to. The Democrats would be dumb to drop Joe Biden. He's their best candidate. Yes, and I hope the Democrats are following what he's saying. They to are. stay on message, the working class. They're going to fall in line. Look, the president's polling is saying it, okay? They're seeing it. And they're not just talking to whites like Tim Ryan in Ohio anymore. They're getting, they're, they're seeing it. They're, they're reading this stuff. They listen to Mike Drop. Joe Biden listens to Mike Drop. So just kidding. Look, look they're, 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 these are I hope he does. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're figuring this out. They're going to figure it out. The question is going to be, can they bring the rest of their coalition along with them? Because once they start moving some of these policies, Bernie is going to say, wait a second, man, no. And AOC is going to be like, uh-uh, right? And the squad's going to be like, no, you guys are corporate Democrats and you guys are what's wrong, but that's where the votes are at. And that's what—that's how Biden won. That's how Clinton won. That's how the Democrats got their shit together after the 1980s, in the mid-1980s in the Democratic Leadership Council, is they had to create a new apparatus to drive the Democrats away from the cultural drift. Remember, in the 80s, Reagan was talking about welfare queens and San Francisco liberals. San Francisco liberals is dog whistling for talking about gays, right? Yeah. What it was. What are Republicans talking about right now? Talking about trans people. Yeah. They're voting dead to pull down the pride flag. Guys, it's not new. It's the same freaking playbook, right? Right. So what's going to happen, though, is that society has changed. That's not a winning strategy for, for the Republicans. What they're doing is they're trying to get their evangelical base even bigger. They're pitting evangelicals against college-educated people because there's very few people that went to college that hold those attitudes anymore. That's true. So if you, the more college-educated you are, the less, you know, white supremacist you are, the less you support the Confederate flag, the less you're anti-gay, anti-trans, the less anti, you know, Muslim, less anti-Latino. You, you go to college, it's not just that you get, an, you increase your economic opportunities, you change your perspective culturally of the world. That's what they're afraid of. That's what the Republicans are afraid of. That's what Sarah Huckabee Sanders' message was all about. It's a rejection of all of this change. That's why Tucker Carlson is so strong. Is he's the guy who goes on the, the main propaganda machine every night and tells millions of Americans who to be pissed at. Are we pissed at the Mexicans coming across the border? 
Are we pissed at the Muslims who want to impart Sharia law? Are we pissed at the gays who are, you know, really drag queens that want to indoctrinate our kids? Are we pissed at the Chinese Communist Party who's floating balloons over our country? Are we pissed at who, the, the Antifa? Are we? Who are we pissed at? Let's be pissed at somebody because we don't believe in anything and we don't stand for anything because politically we know that people are motivated by what they're mad at, what they're angry at, and who they're against. So right. let's Partisan. talk about that. Partisan politics. So then that's another question. So if more people are getting college educated, how are Democrats going to hold on to the working class? How are they going to speak to the working class if the voters are getting college educated? That's their problem. And that's what I'm, that's my whole point. That's why they're losing the working class. It's not it's not just because of economics, although that is a big part of it. I started the show by saying there's three big issues, right? Right. Race, economic class, which is the point you're bringing up, and technolo- technology, which is driving culture. All three of those have a partisan component to it. The class I teach at USC is called race, class, and partisanship. It's literally to the question that you're just asking. Mm-hmm. It's because all three of those come together in one place and they determine our voting behavior because there's such a strong correlation between race and class and partisanship now in America. And the economic classes are separating. The culture is separating. And, the, and our racial composition is becoming more diffuse. I, 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 I understand. I'm just trying, my net, I'm thinking in terms of what's next then. How, how, do, how do we, hand, how do Democrats handle that? Like, how do we win? How do we, I, locally, yeah. I, I look at my local candidates and I'm a little frustrated because I don't see the fight. Again, you guys radicalized me. Yeah. And well, so, you know, I mean, so kidding around, but this, I, I see that lack of not playing in the game they're in. Well, that's a big problem, and both sides suffer from that, is everyone just speaking to their own groups, their own bubbles, and they're not speaking to other people. And then most importantly, they're not listening to other people. Right. Right. But so as the class divide starts to define American politics, Democrats are increasingly talking to more and more college-educated people, people that are working in higher-educated jobs, higher-tech space, healthcare, biotech, technology, IT, all of those industries. Republicans are talking to construction workers, people who are on the manufacturing line, people in you know agriculture, people who are working in the energy patch in the Rio Grande Valley or in the Central Valley of California or fracking, right? So they're not even they're not they're not watching the same things. Working class people are more likely to be to go to church and are motivated by those faith issues. More, the more you go to college, the more education you get, the further away you go, you come, regardless of your denomination, away from religious organization. So there's the, all of these changes are making for two different Americas. Right. And so what Biden is saying is what I'm pointing out, what Brookings is saying is you're going to start losing these ethnic and racial voters that used to be based Democratic votes on economic issues now. You're losing them on economic and class issues, largely because as white college educated people, you're overwhelmingly focused on issues like the environment to the to the to which 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 to the detriment of, of working class industries and this cultural drift that you have the luxury of working and thinking and talking about Latinx, critical race theory. Mm. 
gender issues are not what working class people, it's not the reality of what working class people are dealing with. And it's not that they're against those issues, they're just not relatable. It's like it's like being a, a guy in, in working class, you know, blue jeans and, and an overcoat from the construction right. site. And then you gotta walk into the boardroom at Facebook and and those are just, you're not comfortable there. You're not, you're not, you don't hate them. You don't dislike them. You just can't relate to them. Okay. So as someone on the ground, I have to talk to working class people differently than I talk to upper class no, people. No, you have to convince Democrats to actually listen to working class people and give a damn about their issues without saying <laughs> it's a government solution. You think I can do a lot, Mike? <laughs> I, it's a tough business, Peg. That's why I think you should run for office. I got complete confidence you're able, your ability to pull this off. I'm up for it. I'm up for it. I'm here to help you when you make that decision. Thank you. All right. Good talking to you, Peggy, as always. The same. Yeah. James, you're on stage, brother. Hi, Mike. How are you? Good. How are you doing tonight? I'm all right. Um, I got a simple question. Okay. Keep talking about college-educated people, and they're going towards the Democrats. Yeah. First of all, myself, my own, and I'm college-educated. I went, I went to Rutgers, which is considered a liberal school. Um, but I'm also a working class. I've always worked. I've worked a blue-collar job. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in the power generation business. Okay. Supervisor. So I'm kind of like in both worlds there. So you know what I'm talking about. I do. But then I have a question, though. When you say college educated, you have college educated people who have gone to a liberal school like I did. But then you have college educated that went to a conservative school. Can you see the differentiation in voting or do you lump them all in the same? Or do they go the same way? Um, I mean, there's nothing that is uniform, right? It's like saying all black voters vote the same. Well, no, they don't. Most right. do. That's when we start to look at blocks, and so we 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 grossly overestimate, you know, people. We, we want to put them in this nice, neat little box. When I say college educated, college educated or, or, or voters are increasingly voting in a certain direction, regardless of that um, ideological persuasion. By the way, most conservative colleges there's not that many of them. There's very a lot of religiously affiliated. But it's a, it's, it's a very small percentage of what we're talking about. Public institutions, by the way, I mean, none of those are conservative, mm-hmm. which is where most people get their college degrees from, by the way. You said public. That's, did I hear public. you correct? Public. What about private? That are not- the private well, look at the Ivies. The Ivies are not conservative, right? Right. So, you know, what, what, what institutions are conservative? Liberty University. Stuff right? like that. Gonzaga University, Right. Uh, even where I went was a Jesuit university, which is Georgetown, very liberal, very progressive, right? Notre Dame was a conservative Catholic school. Georgetown was like this ultra progressive, you know. So even even in Catholic schools, there's these gradations. Uh, if it's a Protestant school, um, then it's going to be you know more 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 conservative. But again, in terms of the overall percentage of how many people go to religiously affiliated pro- Protestant, you know institutions, I mean, you're talking 10, 15% of college graduates. So the numbers stay the same. And look, I'm also a very big believer that, I mean, if you're properly educated, you're not indoctrinated, right? You just, you're you're learning how to think. 
And, and that's what an education provides. It's not that you become for or against a certain issue. It means two things. One is because you have an, a higher education degree, your job opportunities are, are bigger than if you just went to high school, right? That's just the fact. It doesn't mean there aren't very successful people that are only high school educated. There's a lot of them. Well, but it also means, though, that you have a, a more tolerant perspective because at college is where you're spending time with people that don't look like just the neighborhood that you grew up in. Right. Yeah, I, that, that exactly. Like, like that, the difference between me and, like, the guys I work with, um, like, uh, when I, by me going to college, yes, it teaches you how to critically think and not just assume when you hear something that that's fact. Correct. It's like, like I'll hear stuff and I'll go, well, I don't have enough, enough information. My gut tells me, yeah, you're not right. Yeah, but, you're learning how to think. Yeah. yeah. But I'm not going to like slight you yet until I look into it. Exactly. And that's the big difference that I, that I notice. And yeah, I remember and look, and that, that, that means it's not just that the, the democratic party is moving in that direction and attracting them, but, as the Republican Party is narrowing its field of vision, it's, it's becoming overtly anti-expertise. It's becoming overtly anti-science. It's becoming overtly intolerant. It's become, it's literally, you've got people like Madison Cawthorn saying, don't go to college. Like, don't, don't go, don't get an education. Don't, don't, don't go, don't go for that book learning. <laughs> like, like, you know, just listen to us. Like, don't, don't go learn. Don't go learning filling your head with all those liberal ideas, like learning how to think, like <laughs> understanding science and math. Like, don't do that. Like, that's the devil's work. I mean, that's that's literally what you're hearing now, right? And um, that's, that's, so, so, so there, there's, a, there's a concerted effort to be like, you know, we don't need that type of permissive society, which is, is, is unfortunately what this strain of conservatism is that we are dealing with now. Well, don't... I mean, if you look at the old, at the past, keep the masses ignorant. Yeah, I, and I don't want to say that. I, yeah, I, yeah. Look, that's re history is replete with that. So I'm not going to suggest that that's not there. I've never been in a room of Republican strategists that were thinking, well, how do we how do we keep people from going to college? But again, I, I essentially bolted from the party in any structural, meaningful, participatory way in 2015, 2016. I never thought in my wildest imaginations you would have sitting members of Congress saying, don't go to college. Like, don't, 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 don't go to school. <laughs> like, like it's, just, it's just freaking crazy. But here we are. Well, there was a time when the Republican Party was considered to be the educated party. Well, that's why I joined it. I mean, say what you will in the 80s. I mean, the, 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 the Republican Party was, I, I believe it was the thinking person's party. There was an right. intellectual basis for conservatism. The Democratic Party was was a coalition party. I'm not saying it was bad. I'm just saying it was about people who were basically anti-establishment. It was the counterculture party in the 60s and the 70s. That's what the Democratic Party was. The Republican Party had the great thinkers like George Will. It had the you know the, the, it was an intellectual movement that was trying to find a better way for society to work. You could disagree with it. That's fine, but there was an intellectual basis for it. That's all gone now. Like the George Wills of the world have been replaced by the diamond and silk, or at least silk, because diamond's no longer with us. Yeah. God rest her soul. 
right? That, but that, that, that cartoonish performative, the Charlie Kirks and the wh whoever they are. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's a clown show. It's all performance. Lauren Bober, right? It's like, this is, these are not towers of intellect. These are not people that are steeped in conservatism. It's no. all performative vaudevillian nonsense. I got one last thing to ask you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you heard all the pundits on TV, and I reacted this way too last night. So what was what is your take on, like, the Republicans were, like, totally denying the Social Security, Medicare. Oh, no, 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 we don't want to do anything to it, right? Like, And it looked like Biden kind of, like, won them over. I got, I got that, and that was my immediate reaction. But they have, the Republicans really can't do anything about it anyway right now. So to them, it was, I'm thinking it was no big deal to do what they did. That's exactly what it was. I mean, the Republicans, I mean, suddenly they're worried about the debt and the, you know, how much money we're spending again, screw you guys. I mean, Donald Trump spent more than I think every other, any other president combined. He, I, he, he put, he, I, I mean, don't even get me started. I, it just, he, it, it's not, it's not a real argument. They have no credibility on it. There's no legitimacy on it. And that's just where they're at on most issues. Any semblance of the conservative philosophy that I grew up with in the eighties and into the nineties. And I would say up until, you know, the early George Bush administration is completely gone and whatever may exist with these establishment Republicans who somehow can muster the the gumption, despite everything they've done over the past six years, to now talk about deficit spending and the debt, they've got zero credibility. Is it, conservatism is dead. We're, we're, we are now in a time when we're dealing with, with national populism, and it's, it's very dangerous, and this is why. There, there's no ideological core driving one of the two great parties of this country, and that's, that's why it's so dangerous, is it's literally up to the whims of whoever is controlling that piece at that time, because it simply wants to defeat the Democrats. It simply wants to stop what the Democrats agenda is. And that's dangerous. Political parties should not and are not defined by what they are against. They should be healthily constructed. They should be vessels for a philosophy of government towards improving people's lives. Right. That's what a political party is. That is not what the Republican Party is anymore. Yeah, because I think it's quite dangerous. If you were to take people's Social Security and Medicare and make them poor, literally poor, then you're going to have a lot more pissed off people. Wow. They don't have the balls to do it. They don't have the balls to do that. And if they did, the part, that would be the end of the party. You have to remember, you know, Republicans skewed decidedly 65 plus. They've already started killing their base with COVID, right? <laughs> So you start to you start to you know peel off just five six eight percent of their hardcore base, and they, they become a marginalized regional party very very quickly. They're already on the cusp of it. They're not expanding their base. That's not true. Up until twenty twenty, they were not expanding their base anywhere. Hispanics are backfilling that role, but they they can't afford to lose old whites. There's there's too many of them dying off naturally. Mm -hmm. It's the fastest shrinking demographic, and they're not replacing them with Hispanics fast enough. Yeah. My own sister, very conservative, made a statement the other day, and it made me look at her. She said she doesn't see the Republican Party long. That's what she said. Yeah. yeah. Well, she's right. I mean, it's, long, it's, a, it's they're in a demographic cul-de-sac. 
if, if 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 Democrats could go win Hispanics back, it would be over. It's lights out for the Republican Party. It's over. Man. Today it would be over today by the twenty four cycle. I just don't think that Democrats can get past themselves and, and start speaking to working class folks. Man. Guys, James, thank you so much for the questions. We have gone on too too long, as I sometimes do, but it was great to see some regular voices back. Uh, these lanes are starting to clarify again. We're getting back into presidential politics. Buckle your seatbelts. It's coming up. I want to say thanks to everybody for joining us. We'll do this again next Wednesday. Same bat time, same bat place, 530 p.m. Pacific, 830 p.m. Thanks again for joining. Mic drop. Have a great week, guys. Have a good, good week.